Startup Experts is a 1,000-plus member organization of finance, ops, and HR leaders that come together in person and online to build relationships, to learn from one another, and to support each other personally and professionally. While no one member is an expert in all things, collectively our combined experience is extraordinary and our passion for learning is unparalleled. This podcast is about amazing people, their perspectives on our ever-changing world, and how we adapt to these changes as leaders. My name is Jesse Fries, and this podcast is about becoming better with startup experts. I have a confession to make. I'm an avid podcast listener, and I've always wanted to create my own. In part, it's because I'm fascinated by people, and it's a rare day that doesn't go by when I don't talk to someone interesting. And many times after such discussions, I regret not having recorded it so I could share what I learned. I am constantly learning and am frequently inspired by those around me, especially other Startup Experts members. What would stop me from creating a podcast, you might ask? Well, it was fear to put myself out in a recorded format. I've hosted hundreds of in-person events, panels, and meetups through the years, and while I might be considered a good connector, I'm not a really polished orator. I don't hit my scripts perfectly. At best, I can host a decent conversation, ask a few relatively good questions, and keep an event on schedule. This said, I believe that we are all interested in becoming better, and I am no exception. This podcast is me putting myself out there in a slightly raw state with the hope that you will witness me and this podcast become better over time. Thank you to my guests, current and future, for allowing me to learn from each recorded interaction. And thank you for your patience, support, encouragement as you follow me on my journey. I appreciate you. I'm really excited to share today's upcoming conversation with you. I first met CJ Tinley a few years ago when she was the VP of finance at one of my clients, and I couldn't have been more impressed. In this discussion, we talk about her career and how she navigated from a finance manager role to a VP of finance role, and now to a chief financial officer position at our current company. For finance leaders, this can be a real challenging journey, and I loved hearing her perspective and advice for others. What also stands out to me is even though she spends her day working in a highly number-driven finance world, she also is a really interesting human being. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. CJ, I'm excited to be sitting down with you. I've known you for a number of years, and it's a real pleasure to sit here and learn more about you. Would you mind introducing yourself? Absolutely. I'm CJ Tenway. I'm currently CFO at Recurve, which is a climate tech company trying to reduced basically demand side usage of energy to uh, reduce reliance on the grid. It's uh, not super evident to everyone right now, but the grid is in a constant state of uh, turmoil with supply needing to actually equal demand with solar having lots of available power during the day. At night, when all that uh, capacity and supply goes away, the grid really takes on a lot more in, in dirty types of, of supply, like a jet engine fuel, a jet fuel power plant in Oakland will maybe turn on those hot days when we're using AC. So we're trying to really get people to use less energy at those peak times and throughout every hour of every day to really reduce that that push and pull that is happening that people don't even realize. I'm reading a book called The Grid and it's really putting 
in, it all into context of how it came to be in the United States, how it's different than Europe and how we've created a, a problem for ourselves that everyone's trying to solve. So Reacher's trying to do its part to, to make a difference. And I'm so excited because I love to work. So working <laughs> at a company that I think can actually benefit all of us and generations to come, it's much more fulfilling. And every moment that I'm working feels a little bit better than when I was working at other companies. But I think you were asking one. (laughs) So I think I went. Well, no, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, uh, we'll talk about your your career today. But, uh, you know, I saw you started your career earlier with gaming companies, EA, the Walt Disney Company and so on. And having worked in the startup industry myself for a long time and, and met a lot of founders, I'm not a gamer. And I'm always a little more passionate around companies that are doing something meaningful and, and making a positive contribution. Not to say games are not positive for certain folks, but um, I always overvalue companies that are thinking about the world around them. So I'm you know, excited to hear that you're also passionate about that. Definitely. And it's funny, working at EA and Disney was such a great foundational learning for me. And Disney, I'm a huge Disney fan. So it was like the pinnacle of my career to say that I worked at Disney. But internally, it was actually a little bit different than I had expected. It was much more of this is how we've been doing it for 80 years, and we're not going to change it from a back office point of view. They're incredibly innovative with their product, but not with their accounting policies or their HR policies. I I was at EA and Disney and Ernst & Young prior to that. So getting a really great, in my opinion, foundation for accounting and finance. And then when I was at Disney, everyone that worked in the Palo Alto office had been Plato, which had gotten acquired by Disney. And so they had this true startup DNA to them. And they showed me that the impact that you can have at a company is so much greater at a startup. So both my boss, who I had followed from EA to Disney, and I left Disney to join startups. And both of us have been pretty much in the startup world ever since then. So for like the past 10 years or so. And I think we both have found so much more meaning and impact being at startups. Yeah. Let's dig into that Walt Disney comment and and your fascination with Disney. I was doing a little <laughs> research and I discovered that you are someone who loves costumes, a lot of online, and maybe it's the distorted reality of social media. But, you know, Batman, I saw a Wheaties costume there. I saw a Green Army soldier. And I think most recently I saw that, I think it was you being quoted in a San Francisco article about Where's Waldo for the Beta Breakers. I did like the I did like the quote, because I would love to be quoted in a newspaper, a quote, we love to party, end quote. So it was hilarious because I sent that article to my friends and family. I had a fellow tour guide, we can talk about my tour guiding later, but a fellow tour guide sent that to me because I didn't know if it was going to make it in. And so I forwarded the article to my whole family and I said, obviously it was paraphrased of we love to party because my wife and I don't love to party. <laughs> we like to take part in the festivities. In that case, it was beta breakers. So the 12K foot race to the city that is technically called a parade because folks run naked. And if it's a parade, the police don't have to crack down on that. I go to the beta breakers a lot. I used to go as a child. And so it's kind of part of the San Francisco experience for me. But while I didn't run it this year, I did dress up to your point as Where's Waldo. So I bought a Where's Waldo costume last year. And I've decided that for all of 2023, every like vacation spot or notable place that I go, I'm going to bring the Waldo costume. So I have already, I'm calling it Waldoing or Waldoed in Starting Portland, trend Chicago. Here. Yeah, I am. Portland, Chicago, New Orleans, LA, like it's, the count is growing. So I'm going to have a 2023 book of all the Waldoing that I've done this year. 
That's awesome. I love it. And I think outside of the quote that you all love to party, I love that you dropped in a reference that your mom usually was there when, as a hula dancer. Yes. My mom has been a Polynesian dancer my whole life, and she would take her legitimate costumes and run the seven plus miles in her actual hula costume. Uh, it's actually funny because she was actually featured in the Chronicle many years ago with a photograph of her truly in coconuts and a grass skirt um, that I sent to the family when I forwarded the article to be like, look, mommy was in it, you know, however many years ago, and here I am in it now. <laughs> it runs in the family. That's amazing. We like attention. That's cool. Yeah, clearly I saw a lot of mouse ears in pictures. Yeah, so tell us, look like you grew up outside Sacramento. Went to a high school, which I wasn't aware of, Wood Creek, home of the Timberwolves. Yes. Tell us a little bit about growing up as a kid. Yeah, growing up in Rosa, it was really interesting. It's a fairly conservative town or city, if you might call it. It's 20 minutes outside of Sacramento. So growing up, I was incredibly politically conservative, and I went to UC Berkeley for school. So it was a 180-degree difference on political views. So that was a real kind of growing arc in my personal story, going from that. But Wood Creek was great. It was it was a new high school. The first graduating class was 1999, and I graduated in 2003. So it had all state-of-the-art track facilities, AV. It was, I loved that. It was also not very diverse. So growing up, I became aware that I was Asian, but it wasn't really clear to me because everyone else was white and I thought that was normal. And so when I think about who I am culturally, like I'm mostly just like an American or like white, but I happen to look Asian. So I'm a constant foreigner. But in my high school, there was four Chinese kids. It was me, my brother, and another family friend who had, who had two daughters. There's, the high school was um, so, so nice. And, and like, I didn't have to deal with a lot of the problems that my mom did. She grew up in San Francisco, went to Washington High School here in San Francisco. Just like the gang problems and a lot of the things that she didn't want her children to have to deal with. Um, so I'm really grateful for them for, for giving me that childhood. Yeah. At what point did you decide that you wanted to get into finance? Mm. So I was in, in high school, I was in FBLA, Future Business Leaders of America, and competed at various conferences and felt that business in general was a really good place for me because I felt like I naturally gravitated towards thinking about how is money made? How is a business model uh, and how is business state? So that is something that I thought of in general. So when I went to UC Berkeley, I wanted to go to the Hawk School of Business. But the way that the undergraduate program works is you have to apply as undeclared and then apply for that program your sophomore year to get in for your junior year. So I went to Berkeley undeclared, which was super scary for me. I'm super risk averse. So the fact mm -hmm. that I would go to what is seemingly a better school than UC Davis, where I got a, in as pre-managerial economics, which is essentially their business path, to take the risk to apply was so scary. And I actually would say that I feel like I got into business school on my own merit and hard work, but also as a result of my sorority. So I was in an Asian-American sorority called SOPI. And in it, you have older girls who have previous tests and previous problems from things and just knowledge about professors and how they operate. And so I was able to leverage all of that knowledge to, I feel, strategically place my classes, scores, essays, prompts, all those things uh, to eventually get into Haas, which I did and went there for junior and senior in the undergraduate program. And it was at Haas where I went, it's a business administration general degree. And I was sitting in the accounting intro class and they had four partners from the big four come and sit with us. And they said, hey, 
this is a great foundation in business. And look at this ladder of uh, promotions and pay raises that you get just from the part of the big four. So for me, not knowing exactly what I wanted to do, growing up in a family that was mostly in the medical field, father's a dentist, my mom was a dental assistant, my aunt's a hygienist, like it was, that was the world that they were living in. And they actually didn't want me to go into that world because of all the malpractice suits and a lot of like just health issues that you have to deal with. And they actually, after the pandemic, I was really grateful to go into the health field because that would have been my day to day. So getting into business was something new. I'm the only person in my family in business. So I had no idea what that meant. So the fact that the big four offered a very clear path, I was like, sign me up. So junior year, junior summer, I interned with Ernst & Young and accepted the full-time offer and was overjoyed to be there. My first client, my main client, was a mortgage insurance company in 2007. Hmm. It was the craziest three years to be auditing a mortgage insurance company. They have since gone out of business. They got taken over by the state to be regulated by the state and then actually went out of business. It was a great under fire first three years in the working world. As the mortgage crisis hit the United States and the world. And um, yeah, that is, uh, but that's how I got into finance is it was literally four partners coming to sit in the intro to accounting class. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I thought I'd take a brief moment to share something that I found to be true. I've worked in the HR space for over 20 years, and one of the most challenging things that a people leader encounters is supporting employees during life-changing events. One of these occurrences is managing employee leave because it requires juggling a complicated and changing landscape of HR rules, state laws, IRS regulations, company policy, and of course, your employees' well-being. Few leaders are an expert in this space, which is why here at Startup Experts, we are proud to partner with Sparrow the leave administration experts. If you're seeking support and help with your company's leave program, we encourage you to visit www.trysparrow.com. Thank you. Now let's return to our discussion. Interesting. And, and then after the EY experience, you got into the prototypical Silicon Valley FP&A. world of yeah. software gaming, mobile gaming. How did you end up there? So again, this isn't great of my story, but I was lazy and I was at Ernst & Young and external recruiters were coming my way. And so I just feel that all the external recruiters and eventually I interviewed at Electronic Arts for three different jobs. And I finally got the third one that I got because they weren't really willing to take someone straight out of audit into an FP&A role. And so finally, the third hiring manager had talked to the previous two hiring managers who were like, hey, CJ's great. That was a senior financial analyst role. Not right. And so he had a financial analyst role was willing to take a chance on me. So I was those first six months, it was like drinking from a fire hose. And I thought I was going to get fired every day. I actually came home every day and told my now wife, I think I'm going to get fired today because I didn't know what I was doing. And looking back, that is when I learned the absolute most. Just learning foundations of how do you build a model? How do you think about the business? What are the levers? And also I learned Excel skills. Ironically, in auditing, I wasn't very good at Excel and wasn't taught on the job. So learning VLOOKUPs, learning pivot tables, just things that help me do my job every day, gained an EA. And so I always tell people now like to be comfortable being uncomfortable because when you're uncomfortable is when you're learning the most. And it's the scariest time but when you look back, you're so grateful for those moments. I love that. Yeah, for sure. Those 
work situations that I've been in where I have been very uncomfortable and frankly, haven't done a great job executing have been those opportunities where I've learned the most and been able to build uh, and learn at a much quicker rate. So I certainly can appreciate what you're saying. And yeah, I mean, Excel, PowerPoint, and, and I'm not in finance, but I wish I'd been taught about those tools. Absolutely. And I actually look back at kind of the UC system and curriculum. It's very liberal arts-based, like teaching critical thinking, anal analytical thinking, but not the tactical day-to-day -day skills you need to do your job. And I actually think that's where state schools and, and junior colleges actually really excel. Because they're actually teaching people the skills they need to do the job. Yeah, no, I agree. And so the next role you had I, was at InfoScout, and it looked <laughs> like initially you oversaw finance, H, and ops, so huge role. But then it appears like there was a lot going on there. Walk us through those four years. Yeah, InfoScout was great. It was my very first startup. And I jokingly, it was my first startup, so I didn't know what I was getting into. And I would tell people in hindsight, I thought to myself, well, if it doesn't work out, I can just leave after a month and go back to big companies. But it turns out I absolutely loved it. At startups, this one was in an alley in Soma in San Francisco. And we literally had to take out the trash. Like this was, there was 20 of us in an office. You do everything. You open the garage door because you're in an alley to let the glass doors be open. And you take out the trash. You do anything you need to do to get the office up and running. And that was a great learning for me. Of This is the true difference between a startup and let's say a publicly traded company where cash doesn't matter. It's actually funny. Roy, my old boss, who I did follow from EA to Disney, he used to say cash is king. And at EA, I didn't understand that comment. When I went to startups, I absolutely understand why cash is king. Cash lets you determine your own destiny. It gives you timeline. It gives you payroll. All these things that are not a concern when you're working in finance in a big corporation. So Infosco was great. I got to do everything. As you said, I was our recruiter. I was our office manager. I was our liaison to our IT consultant. I did HR until we hit 50 people and I felt like the compliance issue was much more of a concern. So we hired an HR manager and I did finance and we had one accountant and that actually was the finance team, me as the head of finance and our one accountant through acquisition. So we eventually got acquired by Vista Equity Partners, which is a private equity firm out of Austin. And they combined us with another market research company based in Chicago and rebranded us as Numerator. And I stayed at Numerator for about a year and a half transitioned to an operations role because they didn't need finance. They already had it and got to seek that through and then move on to my next adventure. But InfoScout was the best culture I've ever been a part of. And I think every person that was there. So when we got our quiet, there was 97 of us. I know that I can call any of those 97 people today for a reference just to chat, to talk about anything because we were in the trenches together and we went through that process together, that growth. And it was just such a wonderful experience that I hope to replicate in the future, but have yet to achieve the, the magic that was in Scout. Interesting. I'll pause there. Building culture is so important. It's certainly something that is commonly discussed within the startup experts community. You allude to this bonding and growth. Is there anything else that you could point to that was unique about that experience that maybe somebody else can take a learning from? I think that our CEO and the way that he thought about the world and the way that he shared it with the rest of us is what was unique about InfoScout. So he really believed, and this is something that I wrote down in a notebook and I actually reference all the time, which is if you're smart enough to figure something out, you don't need to pay an expert to do it. And this was our philosophy on legal, which people can have varying degrees of comfort with that. 
but the idea to believe in yourself and what you can accomplish and you don't need somebody with a special title or a special degree or license like you can do it i think that type of mentality permeated all of info scout so all of us felt empowered to make decisions to weigh in on things and to get the job done and that i think is one of the key pieces as, as, along with being a great human being i had concerns when interviewing and I talked to two peers because I only talked to the leadership team in the interview process. So I asked to speak to a peer because at the time I was being hired as a manager and a woman because I spoke to no women in the interview process. And the the male individual I talked to said, Jared, our CEO is one of the best human beings I've ever met in my entire life. And I think that also really influences my decisions when going to new companies. I have to believe that the leadership or high integrity, good human beings. And if I believe that, then I believe they will treat the team, investors, all partners well when outcomes come, like when that time comes to exit. And, and I have to have that belief in the integrity of leadership for me to join a company because I've seen that it plays out really well. There were so many other things that Infoscout had, but I think that those two kind of empowering people and, and being of high integrity are, are the things that I can share We'll be right back after this message. For 15 years, I've worked in the PEO industry advising HR leaders on how best to navigate the challenging world of running people operations. It's really tough. With 50 states all legislating different rules, it's no wonder HR teams regularly struggle in today's highly distributed world. Now imagine what can happen when your leadership team asks you to begin hiring internationally. With four times more countries in the world, 195 to date, Becoming an individual expert is next to impossible. Here at Startup Experts, we are proud to partner with Vistra because they can help you navigate these challenges. While they are equipped to help your team with transactional items like employer of record services, contractor payments, and international payroll, their real value is having thousands of consultants around the world that can also advise you on international HR, entity setup, and corporate tax strategy. If you're seeking a global partner to complement your U.S. operations, we highly recommend engaging Vistra. Thank you. And now back to our conversation. Let's wrap up the last couple of roles that you had. You were at Coalition, Zesty, where I met you, and then you moved to TapJoy and now Recurve. Yes. Coalition was amazing. They were such a rocket ship. They are such a rocket ship. They've both recently been valued at $5 billion. So from- Is that right? Uh, Oh. It is. From an investment of my time point of view, Coalition has been the best time spent. However, oh, well, I was speaking to stock options, of course. I wish to talk about that if anyone's interested. But the Coalition was absolutely great. They knew what they were doing. They knew where they were going. And they didn't need finance to help with that journey. And I think in the interview process, I don't think I vetted that enough to understand at that time, now I say Coalition has an amazing CFO right now, and he's taking them where they need to go. But at the time, I joined Coalition when they were 16 people renting space from a different company, subleasing, and not having our own office. It was just a completely different time and place. And for the 13 months that I was there, they just didn't need finance to have a seat at the table and guide where they were going. And because of that, I left. And I actually left to go to Zesty, which my head of sales from InfoScout had gone to Zesty AI and said, CJ, I would like you to come help us build culture here. And because I knew Coalition didn't need my help, 
And it sounded like Zesty did. I went to where I could be of the most help because for me, titles and compensation are great, but the ability to impact, the ability to get up in the morning and know that I'm making a difference is so much more important than all those other things. So that's why I eventually left. And uh, yeah, I think Zesty was great. It is doing really well as well. I think there were some changes because the pandemic hit and we had long sales cycles. And this is where Cash's King became really important as well. And I learned the beauty of paying vendors maybe a little bit later so that they don't get bothered, but you, so that you preserve that cash. But those types of things I was learning, but felt that uh, because the sales cycles were so long, they didn't really need me at my pay and level to be there. They could be led by a more junior finance person who would have the ability to grow there. Zesty felt a lot like InfoScout and it, it wasn't growing me as much as I wanted to. And Tapped gave me that opportunity to lead a team of seven cross-functionally across accounting and finance and really double down on that CFO track that I had for myself instead of having a wide breadth where at Zesty I did own HR and finance and accounting. So double down on that finance role and really set me up for success. And Tapjoy, I mentioned to you earlier, Jesse, they got acquired by a publicly traded company that then got acquired by another publicly traded company. So two years after joining Tapjoy, I suddenly found myself not at a startup, but at an 8,000 person publicly traded company that is Unity Technology. It, it wasn't the place that I found that I wanted to be. I wanted to stay at Tapjoy for years and years. I don't think I mentioned this to you, but a finance manager that I worked with at EA was at Tapjoy. And when mm. she found out that I was in the running for the role, we jumped on the phone and she's like, you need to come here. This is the best team I've ever been on. And she was right. This was the best finance team I've ever been on. And I wanted it to last forever. John, the CFO and I, we made an informal pact. We're going to, we're going to grow this team. We're going to make it amazing. And we're going to be here for a long time together. And we both ended up leaving because of the two acquisitions. They didn't need a lot of finance leadership. So we both have moved on since then, but we both are disappointed that we didn't get to be a part of that Tapjoy family a little bit longer and really harness the potential of that team. Cause there was so there's, there is so much amazing talent on that team still. And most of them are still at unity. Um, and I'm just disappointed to not have gotten to work with them longer. Yeah, no, I, I love to hear that journey and different ops, different finance roles have led you to now a chief financial officer role at recurve. You've already shared about the organization, but I'd like to revisit your comment about leadership integrity and being a leader that others will follow. Now that you're in that role, what advice do you have for other leaders on being that individual at the top and, and being respectable and, and allowing folks to look at you and say, that's somebody I believe in? I think that being transparent always giving context and rationale for any kind of decision that you're making or any kind of announcement is so key. And I'm, so this is my, I haven't even been here a month yet. I started on May 8th, but I am taking a proactive stance in meeting every person in the company. There's only about 65 of us, but I want to take that time to meet every individual because I want them to know who I am as a leader. And I want them to know that the door is open. And if there's anything that is going awry that they want, to raise that I'm here to listen about that. Because even though I'm the chief financial officer, I see myself as a leader of the company 
And if anything is going wrong, what I'm telling folks is if I don't know something's wrong, I can't fix it. And being where I am at a fully remote company, by the way, so it's a little bit harder to get those water cooler conversations to get the pulse of what's happening. If people aren't telling me and aren't being vocal, it's really difficult for me to know. So that's what I'm trying to empower individuals with as I'm meeting with them. But I think that on a day in, day out basis, I am just being super clear of what my intentions are and what drives my decision making so that people are never questioning it or um, challenging it because thinking that I have the wrong intentions. Got it. Curious about your experience being a female finance leader. Yeah, it's been really interesting. I think most leadership teams I've interviewed with, it's 100%. And maybe they'll have a female HR or maybe they'll have female marketing. But actually, those have usually happened when I've already been there and we've helped hire the first female HR or female marketing. It is a little bit um, intimidating being the only female in the room because I have a tendency to say things like, I'm sorry, or I just want to. And I'm trying really to, like hard to take those tendencies and, and shelf them away because I don't need to apologize for having an opinion and I don't need to clarify that I just want to say something. It's something that I'm really working on, but it has been a struggle because sometimes males in the room will say something and they are not sure about it, but they say it with conviction that makes you think that it is true or they have vetted it because my experience is that if a female says it with that much conviction, they've done their homework and they're absolutely sure it's right. So I think being able to traverse that and understand what may be posturing and what maybe is the truth has been a challenge. And sometimes I will give in to that really confident opinion to only later find out that it was just an opinion and it wasn't vetted at all. So uh, that has been a really interesting. And me personally, I have always felt too young. I have felt like the only female in the room, but also the youngest one in the room. And that is changing now. As time goes by, as I've gotten more senior in my career, as, as well as just uh, my age, but it is still something that I do struggle with to get over that imposter syndrome of should I be here? And I think Ray Curve is a really interesting situation because I didn't think when I was leaving Unity that I was ready for a CFO role. But the way that Recurve positioned and scoped their CFO role, it happened to speak to the experiences I had. Fundraising, being at anywhere from a Series A to Series C company, growing a company from 16 people to 100, going through acquisitions, exits, venture debt, all these things that I realized I've had exposure to experience with and actually led because I've been the only finance person in these companies. So it was, I guess, a surprise to me that this was a role that was available to me now. But being in it now, I do feel like this is the right role for me because I want to have this impact. I want to make the decisions and I want to be held accountable if I make that decision. And I'm ready for that. So it's been a really interesting first month here as I'm realizing these things and being able to put in place a lot of the foundations that I've learned previously to get us ready for our next round of fundraising and for hopefully an eventual exit someday. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing and I appreciate that. I'm curious around your name, CJ Tinley, and whether having a name like CJ, which you really can't identify as male or female, has in any way played a role in you getting interviews or getting a seat at the table, at least initially. And, and what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. It's funny because when I was an auditor, you don't meet your audit people you're auditing. Usually it's email, 
might be fun eventually. But I actually, uh, NCJ is in my signature of my email. So I actually met in person one of my audit clients and she could stop laughing for about two minutes and couldn't get over the fact that I was a female because she, the whole time we'd been communicating, thought I was a male. So it doesn't happen too often. With the resumes, I do think it helps me because they cannot tell. But with LinkedIn these days, as soon as they put you into LinkedIn, which they will if they're serious about you, they will know. And actually, Jesse, I should share that recently, I'd say in the last five to eight years, being a female has actually helped me. So I have had recruiters come to me and say they want to hire a diverse candidate for this role. And I am of the opinion you should hire the best person for the role. But I also am a realist that the people with the long experiences have been people that maybe were less diverse in the past. So there needs to be opportunities for people that maybe don't have as long the track record or experience. So I appreciate both ends of that spectrum. But recently, I would say the last four times I went out to interview, being a female actually played in my favor as far as getting in the door for the interview with the hiring manager because they wanted to look at female candidates. And then it's not obvious necessarily, but I'm also gay. So that for some recruiters actually was, well, they were using that to position me as extra diverse. I don't like leaning on that because I already have like the Asian American diversity and the female diversity, which in the Bay Area, you could argue that being Asian American is actually not diverse, but in the greater country. I don't like to necessarily like rest on those diversity items, but I also think it's an acknowledge that it's important to have people of diverse backgrounds in leadership roles. And diverse can mean so many different things. It can even mean age, because especially in startups, you get a lot of people that are the same generation in your leadership team. And I think it's actually important to have the spectrum um, of experience, of values, of all of those things. I will say that I think lately being a woman has helped me, but I don't ever want to say that I should have a seat at the table because I'm a woman. I want it to be because of the impact that I make, because of the value that I bring to an organization. Yeah, no, I love that. And I really like the fact that you have been hired on your merits. I feel that in the larger HR world, HR tends to be a, a more female role. And oftentimes, rightfully or wrongfully, they report up through the CFO, which tends to be a male. And while I don't agree with that hierarchy, that tends to be fairly common in a lot of startup setups. So it's nice to see that you're in that CFO role and that you'll be able to perhaps better align HR within the organization. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely feel like finance and HR get lumped together because they are compliance. But the skill set and usually the personality type are very different. Yep. Actually, that's one of the things I love about startup experts is you bring together finance and accounting and an HR and operations. So it's this cross-functional cohort that you don't necessarily get at your company because you might have one or two people, which is actually, I think, why startup experts started, right? To have a community of other people to soundboard off of, to get advice from, to share your knowledge with. And I think that has been incredibly beneficial for me to get insight into so many more HR professionals than I've worked with in my career. Yeah, thank you for sharing. And I wanted to have you talk more about your perspective around people. In one of your articles, you were quoted as, quote, if you put people first, then they will make great products and the profits will follow, end quote. Can you tell us more? 
Yeah, this is absolutely something that I subscribe to. I actually should give credit to Roy, my VP, and now he's a CFO, but I, at Disney, because this is something they see, always believed in, and always used as his mantra. And I've lived it ever since working with him. And because I truly believe if you treat your people, and I, I would like to define people as employees, investors, partners, clients, and customers. People is everyone in the ecosystem of your business. If you treat them well and you have product market fit, profitability will follow. And here at Recurve, I've added another P to that, which is purpose. If you are profitable, you control your own destiny and you can fulfill the purpose or the mission or the impact of your organization through profitability. And that's something that I'm really passionate about here at Recurve is being able to get to profitability so that we can impact as many households as possible, as many people and consumers to really make sure that we have a grid that is sustainable for our future. Yeah, yeah. At the very beginning of COVID, if you recall, we recorded some videos for startup experts and, and you participated in that in our Why Startup Experts or Explainer video. Extremely appreciative of your journey within the community. Glad that you are now back at a startup, having been at a, a larger company. From a financial perspective, and you shared this briefly, tell us about Startup Experts, the community, and what your role specifically gains by being a participant. Absolutely. And I would say that my role within Startup Experts and what I gained has changed over time. So when I started, it was when I was at Zesty AI, we had one finance individual in-house and one HR. And it was so helpful for each of us to have sounding boards within the community to ask, hey, I'm doing a, a demo with RAMP. Has anyone used RAMP before? What is your experience with it? Or I'm going out for a Series C fundraise. What things should I think about in the pitch? These are different things that in the different forums, whether they be finance-based or the general forum, people will be throwing out there. And people share their experiences. And everyone in the community is so willing to share their experience as well as their time. And I think that is what the culture that you've cultivated, Jesse, where people are willing to give that because they get so much. People want to share the knowledge they've gained and also the hiccups and the trials and tribulations so that others don't have to live through it as well. So I think in the beginning, I felt like I was taking, like, like learning and getting a lot from the community. Now, as I'm returning to be more heavily involved, I hope to be sharing. And I hope to be knowledge sharing. Um, so I, I hope to have it switch a little bit. But I think also because it was during COVID, I personally was getting human interaction from it. I think I am such a people person. I had felt so isolated during COVID that having a community of people that were here and available was huge. And I also took part in the mentorship program. So my mentee was actually an HR professional. So while we're not in the same function, we were still able to learn and grow with each other and share those experiences. And I think Startup Experts gave me that opportunity. And I'm so glad that it exists and is growing to give that opportunity to other people. That's great. Thank you for sharing. It's been a, a pleasure working with you. In terms of your career, I mean, hindsight's always 2020, And there's certainly always things that we'd like to, to have a do-over in. But I also believe strongly that, and we covered this earlier in today's conversation, that learning happens at a much higher rate when we're in front of our skis or we're not quite executing at our highest. Are there any instances in your career that, that you would point to that maybe would help somebody else navigate that situation and, and you do it differently? 
I'll, I'll give two examples. I'll give one specific finance example. It also gives what people manage it. So from a finance perspective, I think it's really important to align what they're wanting to get out of something when you're doing a forecast. A cash forecast at a startup is a very crucial forecast. It is telling you how much runway do I have to pay my employees? How much do I need to fundraise or get in debt to continue to grow and invest in the business? Well, when I was at InfoScout, I did a cash forecast that was really conservative. But I did clarify with my CEO and my leadership team that it was a very conservative push. They had asked me, I would have said Dell. It's conservative. You want a realistic and maybe an aggressive? I did offer that. And I did proactively tell them where it was. So we actually went through a couple rounds of debt fundraising. And by the time we got to what was either a Series C or an acquisition phase, we ended up getting acquired. We had a lot of cash in the bank. And I remember my CEO mentioning to me, well, if our cash forecast wasn't so conservative, we could have taken less debt, saved more money in interest, and really just, just invested more in people, maybe even hired another engineer or something. And I think that was a huge learning for me because now when I present things, I always tell someone, this is realistic conservative. This is conservative. This is aggressive. And I'll actually give three cuts so that they always know where it stands because I made that mistake of not having a conversation with him. And in hindsight, one could argue from a finance perspective, what if a global pandemic hit? Weren't you glad you Imagine had the cash that. in the bank? Imagine that. So there's this pros and cons to that example, but I think the, the, the takeaway is be clear about the riskiness that's involved in your, that's built into your forecast so that it's always clear. And then from a people management point of view, the thing that I will say is always give your team, whether they're a direct report or not, give them timely feedback because you never want someone to be surprised. And I'm sure you see this in the HR world all the time, Jesse. You never just want someone to be fired and out of the blue, they are so caught off guard. You need to give them that feedback. Even if they don't hear it as clearly as they should, you need to give the feedback and you need to give it super, super timely so that they can course correct. And I have done that and I have avoided that earlier in my career to my detriment, my employee's detriment, the team's detriment. Because by the time you do bring it up, you're so frustrated and it is, it has permeated the frustration of all involved that it has been bad for the organization. So I would say definitely learn from my example and, and do the hard thing now and give that feedback now. Great. Those are two great shares. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your wisdom. Really appreciate this conversation. Anything last that you'd like to, to share with the crew? Yeah. So one thing I always tell people is if you don't ask, you don't get it. So the answer is always no if you don't ask. So just ask. So I, as a recruiter, by the way, I have hired, I just hired, I've given offers to about 80 or so people. All the male candidates, except for three, have negotiated their offer in some way. Could be PTO, could be equity, could be bonus, could be base. By the same measure, only three women have ever negotiated their offer. And yes, I hire more men than, than women, but that is, for me, a very stark example of the fact that women need to ask for me. And the worst you can get is the answer of no. But the answer was no if you never asked. That's what I just would like to leave everyone with is, is make sure you ask. Amazing. Thanks for sharing. Justine, thank you for having me today. This was so fun just to catch up with you. 
Super. Yeah. And there's a bunch of things that we didn't talk about. I We probably don't have enough time, but I'd love to learn more about at some point the dragon boat experience that you have. Why jasmine tea is better than green tea. I'd like to learn about that. And apparently you're a big Wicked soundtrack fan. All oh, great yes. things. There's so much awesome. to always talk about. You and I can definitely grab time some other time and hopefully catch up personally as well. I hope you enjoyed the previous discussion. If you are interested in learning more about Startup Experts and potentially becoming a member, please visit www.startupexperts.us. The community was created over five years ago for finance, ops, and HR leaders to meet, share knowledge, and support one another. Since we all work cross-functionally together in-house at our respective companies, we believe that it's incredibly valuable to have a community where we can also learn each other's perspectives. This podcast, Becoming Better with Startup Experts, will in part explore these roles and how we can effectively work together. I hope you will subscribe.